Welcome to That Said. I am Michael Zeldin. On today's show, we will be speaking with Erin Thompson about her new book, Smashing Statues, The Rise and Fall of America's Public Monuments, which lays bare the turbulent history of the rise and fall of America's public monuments. Erin is a professor of art crime at City University of New York. Her writings have appeared in the New York Times, the Washington Post, and Smithsonian Magazine, among others. Erin, welcome to That Said. Thanks for having me. I like to begin these interviews by asking all of our authors to tell us something about themselves, how they came to be writing books like this. So if you could indulge us, I'd appreciate it. Well, uh, I am someone who likes school too much, so I went to a lot of it uh, for grad school. I got my PhD in ancient art history and then was thinking, I'm never going to get a job as a professor. I should go to law school instead. Um, so uh, then I was a lawyer, lawyer for a couple of years, then gladly retreated back to the ivory tower uh, and now teach art law and art crime at John Jay College at the City University of New York. And I've always been interested in writing for a larger audience, um, starting with the, the topic that got me interested in the intersection between art and crime, the smuggling of antiquities. And that's something that people at a cocktail party will say, ooh, that sounds interesting, uh, but uh, nobody's going to read an academic article on it. Uh, so I had to figure out a way to tell stories that would get people interested, keep them interested in, and encourage them to take action. And I've expanded out the number of subjects that I'm interested in, in doing that for uh, until now. My latest book is about controversies over American monuments. The title of the book is Smashing Statues, the Rise and Fall of America's Public Monuments. So why did you choose public monuments to write about in a broad audience sense? Well, so I'm a classical art historian. Everything that I write about is that as an academic has essentially been a, a destroyed monument. Somebody smashed it through in a pit. We dug it up a couple thousand years later and get to look at it now. Um, so when uh, American monuments started to fall in 2020, following the death of George Floyd, it seemed to me something very normal in, in human history, because monuments change when, when regimes change, when power shifts, when we have a different idea of what we want uh, the future of our community to look like. And I was really surprised to see a lot of people reacting to say, you know, this is this is barbaric, this is inhuman, this is anti-American, that that kind of thing. I thought, oh wait, I have something to to contribute here, a, per, a perspective uh, on on how monuments uh, have and can work in America. I thought that one of the, the themes of the book that was most important was why the debate over monuments matter. Because you hear a lot of people I don't get invited to cocktail parties. So I don't know what they're like, but you hear a lot of people say, what is the big deal? So there's a statue of Robert E. Lee or some chef that represents the daughters of the American Confederacy or whatever. You have a, a point of view about why they matter. So before we delve into particular statues, can we talk a little bit about this broad public policy, why they matter? I think there's lots of reasons why you could say that monuments matter. To me, they matter because they are telling you your place in American society. 
unless you're rich enough to put up a monument and powerful enough to place it in public, uh, monuments are there to tell you how to act. Um, and often it is saying be respectful to your betters um, or limit your ambitions, especially if you think about how few monuments in America still represent Americans of color or women or any large swaths of categories of people, uh, as opposed to um, sort of white men in power, uh, you see how they're, they're limiting the ambition of, of people. Uh, by saying this is the type of person we honor. These other types of people, eh, you can play a supporting role, but uh, don't don't get your hopes up. You're right that our monuments reflect and shape how we see ourselves as a nation. Arguing about monuments is not a pointless debate about the past, but rather a crucial negotiation about the future. How so is it crucial to the future of our nation that we have this debate? Because monuments are a way for us to have conversations about who should uh, be in power, who should have a say in in the political and social and economic life of our communities. Uh, In a way, you know, your monuments, they're they're hunks of marble, they're they're pieces of bronze. Really, only pigeons should care about them. Uh, It's more what a monument is an opportunity to do. Uh, so it can be something that is inspiring or it can be something that's deeply oppressive. Uh, for example, one of the monuments I, I talk about in the book is a chapter on the world's largest Confederate monument at Stone Mountain. And that project has been happening since 1914. And during that time, the, the Klan has been reborn at the same site in association with the monument project, not once, but twice. Uh, so if you look at that monument, in, in some ways, it's just a couple of guys on horses. But in other ways, it's, it's, there's something about it that encourages this sort of uh, active hatred. So I think it's important to think about what sort of growths we want to encourage and, and which ones we don't. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I think that it's important to what you talk about in the book is to make clear to our listening audience how we are defining what a monument is versus what a memorial is and what the difference between them and the message that they each try to send. Uh, So in the book, I look at monuments, which I define as, as things that praise someone, set them up for emulation versus a memorial which mourns uh, an event that we don't want to ha- happen again. So monuments we want to keep going, uh, memorials we want to avert. And it's interesting as we go through this that so many of these original monuments to the Confederacy were actually placed in graveyards. And we'll talk about post-Reconstruction and what happened. But there is this important distinction about who society determines is worthy of praise and why they're worthy of praise and who by the absence of their presence on monuments is not worthy of praise. Who's on and who's off sends very important messages to people, especially when the monuments are in public places. Oh, definitely. Uh, Something I write about is the 
near total absence of Black people on Civil War memorials uh, or monuments, um, even on, you wouldn't necessarily expect them on the Confederate side, but on the Union monuments uh, either. And an incredibly high percentage of uh, Black men in both the North and in the South fought in the Union Army. Um, and their contribution is not acknowledged. Instead, if you do have uh, in a, a Union Civil War memorial, the presence of a Black person, it's usually someone kneeling, receiving um, the Emancipation Proclamation, receiving the idea of freedom from Lincoln or a, a Union general or someone as, as a gift instead of as um, what they, something that they actually actively fought for. So that way of portraying what the role of Black Americans should be as still subordinate, even if in theory equal after the Civil War, is something very powerful embedded in monuments um, that, that still happen. The first national monument to the Black Civil War soldiers uh, didn't go up until 1998 in D.C. And so we've, we've really got a long history of representing certain parts of history in a way that was very convenient uh, for uh, the way society worked at, at the time. And what struck me also in this thematic part of the book, which actually runs throughout the book, is your recognition that these monuments are not simply race or gender stereotypical, but very class oriented. That there's a bit, and we'll talk about the United Miners and the, the, the fight over monuments there in a minute, but talk about the class hierarchy that these monuments also sort of portray. Well, essentially, I wanted to take a step back and question some assumptions. Uh, I think of the book as basically being organized around a series of my stupid questions of, wait, I don't really understand what's what's going on here. Uh, where are these monuments actually headed when they're taken off of their pedestals and loaded onto a truck? That kind of, of thing. And then it turns out that those questions, of course, had really interesting answers. So one big question I had going in was, are these monuments really honoring the the people who say, the, who are defending them? Uh, because you saw a lot of people saying, look, this monument uh, might be painful to you, another group of people, but to, to me, it's about my heritage, about my Confederate ancestors, my Southern ancestors, um, and, and therefore, let's think about maybe that sort of celebration of that heritage outweighs the pain or, or et cetera. And so I, I wanted to explore whether that was actually true. Uh, and looked more deeply into what sort of messages these monuments were trying to convey when they went up, often uh, decades or even generations after the Civil War. Uh, and I found that they often, Confederate monuments went up in Southern towns in association with labor unrest. And that if you look at the dedication speeches, which were fortunately for me, uh, lovingly reproduced in area newspapers at great length, uh, you see all of this rhetoric from the people who pay for the monuments, the, the factory owners, the, the mine owners, saying, the, hey, audience of white working class men, you should emulate your ancestors, your fathers, your grandfather, um, and self-sacrifice 
and in, in duty to your your betters. So essentially, pay attention to us and stop uh, agitating for for better wages um, because that's not the Southern way. You talk about how the Confederate soldier on top of most monuments is at parade rest. And that is a tell also about what we're talking about. So maybe we could tell us what the tell of Confederate soldiers being at parade rest on top of most of these monuments. What tells what parade rest is and why it's important. Yeah. So if you think of a Confederate monument, you might think of General Lee on a horse, um, uh, a named individual, but actually the vast majority of Confederate monuments are of an unnamed low-ranking soldier standing almost all of them in this particular position, which is very stiff, holding uh, a musket not to shoot, um, but uh, in in a resting position. And I've looked into military manuals from the period and found that this posture is called parade rest, and it was taken not during fighting, not in the field, uh, nothing about heroism or rebellion or et cetera. It was a posture taken when you were listening to your drill instructor um, uh, while, during training. So it is a visual celebration of the obedience of these soldiers, which is really not something we think of <laughs> uh, as a you know, civil war virtue, but this is what these, these monuments were about. Um, and it was such a standard position that often these monuments were more or less mass produced. You could order them up uh, and they would uh, cast them in, in certain factories and then ship them off to your town. Uh, even uh, the factories would make both uh, Confederate and Union memorials uh, just by sort of swapping out some of the details of the uniform. But it's basically the, the same dude. So. Whenever you're on a road trip, I recommend checking out the, the Civil War statue in the, the town square. There usually is one, and they look uh, very remarkably the same. But with this important message by, as you would call them, the economic elites, to this would-be soldier, that you are here to serve us, too. Even though you're a member of the Confederacy, there is still within the Confederacy a hierarchy and yours is to essentially do or die and not ask why. Yes. Definitely. Hmm. So let's go back in time a bit. We've been talking about Confederate monuments, but that's not what your book is all about. There are a lot of other monument types here that we'll talk about. So if you could take us back to the beginning and tell us about the monument freedom who was Clark Mills? Who was Philip Reed? Tell us about the creation of this monument, please. So the U.S. Capitol building on the exterior is topped with an over-life-size sculpture, an allegorical sculpture of freedom. And I was very interested in this statue because of the ironies that this representation of freedom was in part created by an enslaved man named Philip Reed. So Clark Mills uh, was a sculptor. He made the first American um, equestrian monument, the first life-size bronze monument of Andrew Jackson, which still stands near the White House. And he was commissioned to cast uh, a model uh, made by another artist of freedom 
for the Capitol building shortly before the Civil War. And this this model is itself very interesting because uh, it was rejected initially by Jefferson Davis. This was before the war. So he would go on to become the president of the Confederacy. But at that point, he was the secretary of war and was in charge of the, the decorations of the U.S. Capitol. And he freaked out about the artist's decision about the hat for liberty. So he had drawn her wearing uh, this particular sort of bulbous tipped cap. Uh, called the Peleus or Liberty Cap that has been a symbol of freedom since uh, the ancient Romans because they gave that type of hat to newly freed people. Um, but Jefferson Davis said, no, 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 no. We don't want to symbolize freedom as emancipation. Um, American freedom is for those people who've always been free. So he made the artist change the hat. Uh, why? Because he was fiercely defending slavery and he didn't want anybody, especially not anybody looking at official federal art, to have this idea in mind like, oh, um, people currently enslaved in America could one day be free. Uh, and uh, the the casting paused uh, during the outbreak of the Civil War, but then was ordered resumed by Lincoln, who wanted uh, the, the essentially the the propaganda message that the, the capital is, is going, you know, the union will, will emerge strong. Uh, so Clark Mills, we know from uh, the paperwork he filed after he was emancipated to claim wages, worked for more than a year, seven days a week, uh, nearly every day on uh, drying the molds to make this statue. So from the plaster cast, uh, which Clark Mills got, he was making molds in which to pour the bronze, uh, a very tedious and yet extremely important task, not only to, to make the sculptural cast successful, but to keep everybody safe. Because if you didn't make these molds correctly, once you poured in the molten metal, it could explode. Uh, I also found by just looking as hard as I could in, in various um, historical and newspaper archives for any sort of mention of, of Reed uh, or of Clark Mills, that during this um, creation of this statue, one of the, the other people that Clark Mills owned had run away. She had connected with her husband. Um, she had made it almost to the border of Pennsylvania, a free state from um, just outside of DC where uh, Mills lived and was recaptured and taken back. So I thought, how ironic is this that uh, Philip Reed is being forced to work on a representation of what freedom looks like, this very limited freedom that applies only to people who have always been free when he is living with someone who has fought for her freedom and has lost. You write that Jefferson Davis said that he did not want federal art to give anyone the idea that the enslaved could one day be free. And that's which sits on top of the United States Capitol. Still, uh, and I think it's so important to, to know these stories, to think, oh, what exact type of freedom are we advertising still in our art, right? Um, this representation is very clearly the representation of a European looking woman. Uh, 
is is that something that is still limiting to who uh, aspires to have a place in the Capitol today? And she's wearing, I don't know how to describe it, a, a cause triumphant helmet. She's wearing sort of. Mm-hmm. Not uh, I think I say. Sorry. In the ahead. book that it, I think I say in the book, it looks something like a, a Vegas showgirls headdress. It's got a sort of Popeye bald eagle and all these feathers and stars shooting out of it. Right. Which again, points in some measure to, in this case, Jefferson Davis, who had sort of control of this as Secretary of War, what his vision of America was, how we were noblesse oblige and did all the right things, but forced to do bad things, not by our desires, but also to make it be clear that this European looking woman with a helmet was what freedom looked like and who it was intended for. Exactly. And everybody else, um, you better, you better watch yourself. You can't ever be sure that you belong. This notion though, of this noble freedom in a Roman like toga sort of thing carries over to Horatio Greeno's statue of Washington and then again on to his statue of rescue. So perhaps you could tell us about who he was and what the public statue of Washington looks like and same for rescue, where they are. Horatio Greeno was the first American to make his living doing monumental sculpture, was the first American to make a work of sculpture art for the Capitol building. Uh, he is the father of American public art, and he's now almost entirely forgotten because his work was unceremoniously kicked out of the Capitol building. Um, his statue of Washington, just a few years after it was installed, and another statue, a statue of a settler killing a Native American warrior, took uh, a bit longer, but is it, still gone. And I wanted to write about him, which I did for a chapter in the book, because there's this hidden history of the removal of statues. This is another something I saw in the debate, like, oh, we can't possibly um, remove or destroy historical artworks. That's not something we do uh, in the U.S. And I thought, yeah, we do all the time. It's just it's not such a big deal when the people who are removing it because they're offended by it are congressmen, uh, the people in charge. Uh, it's, It's a just a different mechanism um, when you are in charge of the process versus when you're protesting. Uh, so Greenow had what was to him a very exciting task that he, um, unfortunately for him, utterly failed at, at, at being the first to represent what does power look like in America. So he was charged with sculpting George Washington for the Capitol building for the rotunda uh, and he uh, was doing so in the 1830s and lived in Europe to be close to the marble in Italy to get more training. And he was very influenced by what was then the contemporary art movement of neoclassicism in Europe. So he made something that would look very much at home in, in Europe in the 1830s, uh, but was totally bizarre standing to Americans. Uh, It was Washington seated on a a chair, uh, throne maybe, let's call it a chair, uh, 
handing his sword to the viewer, handle down. So the idea is that he's passing on his power as president. He's giving up his power. Anybody else can become president, except for he clearly looks superhuman. He, um, uh, Greenow copied a portrait bust carved during Washington's lifetime. So from the, the chin up, it's very old Washington, realistic looking sort of jowly and wrinkly. Um, but then he morphs from the, the neck down into a superhero body. He's got pecs, he's chiseled, uh, he's wearing strappy sandals and a toga wrapped around his lower half. So he's naked from the waist up. Uh, and there's a lot of, you know, on the floor of Congress, congressmen, representatives uh, making fun of the statue, saying it looks like he's uh, getting out of a bathtub or, you know, winding sheet from his coffin. But what uh, they really are saying is that it's not a appropriate representation for a democratic country because it makes Washington seem like he is divinely favored. Um, he's uh, perfectly physical and mentally, and he's in with God. His other hand is pointing up to God to symbolize his connection with, with uh, the divine. And no, who could hope to equal that to take on the presidency next? Um, certainly not the congressmen who are walking past the statue every day, doing their business, hoping to run for president someday. So they, they were essentially, they, they didn't like it. They didn't see themselves in the statue. They didn't see uh, the statue as putting forth a picture of the way our political system worked that they wanted to participate in. So they said, we don't want it. Uh, within a couple of years, they had kicked it out to the lawn of the Capitol building and then a couple of years after that, it ended up in the Smithsonian Museum. So now you can go see it in the, the American History Museum in D.C., uh, where instead of pointing up to heaven, he's next to the escalator. So it looks like he's pointing up to the next floor. And what about rescue? That's his second attempt. So his first one gets sort of lambasted by the members of Congress, but also sort of the public. It was too Greek noble in its look. It didn't represent the humble nature that the, I guess the, those who protested it wanted to pretend that we were. It didn't leave any room for other people to think I could be sitting on that throne someday. I could be president someday. Um, So Congress had ordered a second monumental statue from Greenow before they saw the first one. Never a good idea uh, when you're spending a lot of money. Uh, but this one, everybody loved. Uh, he had his own choice and he chose to make a scene at the frontier. This was a time, of course, when uh, Americans were were setting policy uh, for relationships with Native Americans, were fighting various, uh, quote unquote, Indian wars. Uh, and so Greenhouse statue fit right into what was the dominant strand of thought in in DC politics of the time uh, that uh, Native Americans were both unchangeably fierce, uh, uncivilized, and also that they were somehow inherently weak and would crumple before the superiority of the white race. So it's, uh, again, you know, Greenow loved the, the really chiseled body, um, any excuse to sculpt a good torso. 
So it's this nearly nude uh, warrior who looks like he's about to bring his tomahawk down onto the head of a, of a white man. Uh, but instead, if you look into the details, you see that the white man has already shot him, has dropped his gun, is just sort of basically waiting for him to, to realize that he's dead. Um, and below uh, those two struggling figures is the wife of the settler clutching her child, not really to protect him, but just sort of just a shield, um, you know, do like earmuffs over the, the violence of the scene. So it's it's a argument that um, there's no other way, there's no negotiations, there's no coexistence, that Native Americans are just going to attack whenever given the chance, but also an argument that they will never win. Um, even without a, a visible superiority or a visible weapon, that the, the settlers will just do their thing and, and somehow this seemingly perfect physical specimen, seemingly powerful, um, will we'll just crumple up and go away. Uh, and that statue was um, just outside the Capitol building uh, for about 100 years. There were some protests in the 1930s and 40s uh, until in 1958, all of the statue was removed, all the statuary was removed from the eastern facade of the Capitol building for renovation works. And almost all of it went back or was replaced with identical copies, but not rescued. Um, there's no, never any official, like, we think this is terribly racist uh, and we're not putting it back, but it just sort of went away. Um, and actually then in the 1970s, when they were shuffling around the storage in the Smithsonian, um, a crane picked up the box containing it and then accidentally dropped it. So it has been destroyed. So again, this is the way that removals and destructions have happened in America. Not that they never happen, they just happen officially um, and sort of on the, the down low versus what we've been seeing much more out in the open in the last few years. I hope they don't drop the lost Ark from the Raiders <laughs> in that same warehouse. That could, that could be terrible. You write of Rescue that it tells the story of American destiny and white superiority. And then we see this picked up again in the Hannah Dustin Memorial. So can you talk about that memorial too? And then list this theme that we're seeing that it's not just race, it's not just class, it's not just gender, it's a whole host of factors that prioritize people's value in the American caste system. Exactly. So on a tiny island uh, in the middle of a river in the Northeast is America's very first public monument to a historical woman, not just an allegorical representation like freedom, but someone who actually lived. Uh, this was Hannah Dustin, who was kidnapped during King Philip's War uh, before uh, American independence uh, by people from the Abenaki tribe uh, and then escaped, made her way back to freedom. And her story was uh, intensely interesting in her lifetime. It was very dramatic. She uh, a, uh, was given to a family uh, and with two of her fellow captives, another woman and a young boy, 
um, figured out how to to ambush this family while they, while they were sleeping. And so they returned on a stolen canoe to Haverford, Massachusetts, where which was her um, place of residence, uh, with a number of scalps from the Abenaki people uh, and their children that she had been held captive by and was awarded um, by the Massachusetts um, Council uh, cash for scalps, essentially. Uh, her story sort of died out after a while, like Cotton Mather wrote about it, people were very interested at the time, uh, but then was revived it, again, it, precisely in the 19th century at this time of expansion in the West, um, and the statue was, was put up on the side of the island where she is thought to have um, uh, killed her captives. And um, the statue was very important for the period because she was what uh, American settlers wanted to see themselves as doing, right? Not as unprovokedly stealing land, uh, but as being someone like Dustin who was, um, didn't want any violence, who was uh, forced into a situation of violence and committed violence herself only because she was was forced to. Uh, and the statue very much uh, plays on tropes of femininity to represent this. So she's wearing a flowing nightdress that's slipping down from one shoulder. Uh, she has this very distraught expression, um, not bloodthirsty, but just doing what she had to do. And in one hand, she holds what looks like a sort of drooping bouquet of flowers, but is actually the scalps that she has just removed from uh, her captors. And this sculpture, uh, obviously, uh, the, the way that we all react to it has changed. Um, it has been the target of, of protest. Uh, for for decades, um, with people splashing paints on it. Um, at some point, uh, someone took a shotgun to her face, so she's missing her nose. She looks a little grim. Uh, and it's also I, I visited that site while writing my book, and it's in this like very desolate uh, industrial, uh, the one of those eerie sites that I've ever been to. And uh, I was interested in these ideas uh, that local authorities had about how to transform the statue. Uh, so uh, the local representatives of the Abenaki tribe have been talking to historians in the state to come up with ways of putting more signage, maybe additional monuments honoring um, the, the Abenaki peoples whose uh, tribes were absolutely devastated during this period as well uh, to have not just a representation of heroic martyrdom, um, but the, the broader context of maybe why exactly were the, the Abenaki people doing this raid on Massachusetts in the first place. Uh, and I'm pretty skeptical, I have to say, that uh, if the politely worded signage that might go up would uh, have a, an effect on this very emotional statue of this distraught woman. Um, you're going to have to have really powerful counter messaging, which is hard to do. So I, I wrote about it because a lot of people say, oh, we don't need to remove statues. Um, we can just put up some signs. But I don't think 
science are going to do a lot to conquer uh, the message that is is very powerfully put into place by by statues like this. Yeah, and in fact, you write of this Hannah Dustin Memorial, and as well, I think it's relevant to rescue. You write that they were both lenses through which white Americans could examine and excuse their violence on the frontier. Dustin was a model of how white Americans wanted to see themselves, not as unprovoked land-greeting oppressors, but as people sternly yet regretfully dealing with a problem that they did not start. What a need for historical correction, huh? Yeah, which is, I often think of Dustin when people say, oh, you can't take down statues because you're going to erase history. And I think, well, what exact history lessons are these statues teaching? That is a very small slice, a very uh, biased slice, let's say, of the history of Western expansion. Uh, and it's maybe not a bad thing that we uh, don't keep um, disseminating that particular message that there was, um, you know, it, it wasn't our fault that we uh, expanded into the West or something like that. They, they started it, uh, is the message of that statue, which is just not true. And you say, interestingly to me, that the people whose voice was heard declaring the statues, these types of statues, unacceptable, were not the indigenous people. It happens, but not the indigenous people, but rather the descendants of the settlers who no longer wanted to think of themselves as cold-blooded exterminating of their inferiors, which is an interesting take down the monuments view, which is it's not those who are, you know, sort of oppressed by the statute, but those who want to recreate some sort of whatever the opposite of critical race theory is. <laughs> right, which is why I think there's a difference between removing a statue and just getting rid of it, putting it in storage, pretending like it was never there, versus removing a statue and actually having a conversation about what distorted version of, of America did that statue represent and why was it there and how do we need to change, uh, not just by cleaning up you know our national refrigerator by taking down snapshots of our exes uh, but how do we actually want to change uh, how the, the future will be uh, not just our perception of the past i just said a minute ago that mostly these statutes toppled to your research by people who didn't like the image it portrayed of them but not so much the indigenous people themselves, but there are obviously exceptions to that. And you write about Mike Forsha and the toppling of the Christopher Columbus statue. And so before we move back and forth among some of the other statues I want to discuss, tell us about Christopher Columbus and Mike Forsha and this whole, we're talking about, I guess, indigenous monuments that reflect the relationship between the indigenous people and the the white settlers and this statue of Columbus fits into this in a very interesting way. So I had the great honor of getting to talk to Mike Porcha, a longtime indigenous activist in the twin cities uh, to ask him why he had not only orchestrated the toppling of the statue of Columbus, but done so very publicly and taken full responsibility for doing it. So there have been very few people who have, um, uh, publicly 
uh, toppled statues and who have been able to talk if their identity is known. But I kept track of uh, my fortress case. And after it was uh, done, I immediately was you know, on the phone to his lawyer asking, OK, can I can I talk to him now? Uh, so he, uh, in the very early days of protests um, in the summer of 2020, um, uh, put out a call on Facebook saying, let's let's, you know, come meet me by the statue of Columbus. Uh, let's let's take him down. Uh, he came and threw a couple of ropes around the, the neck of the statue of Columbus, which was put up in 1931. I've uh, handed the ropes to indigenous women uh, and with just a couple of tugs, uh, Columbus, as I make a dad joke in the book, finally discovered the ground. And uh, he was charged with felony damage to property. He knew that this was a possibility when he was was arranging this. And so I really wanted to talk to him to to ask him why it was worthwhile. Uh, to run this risk because he didn't have a criminal record. Uh, he knew that th that criminal charge and potential heavy financial penalties could really put into risk his ability to continue doing his direct forms of activism. So he is an advocate for, for the homeless. He helps the elderly. He protests um, pipelines uh, and other many other indigenous uh, issues in uh, St. Paul and Minneapolis. And he said, well, of course it was worthwhile because it was an opportunity to point out the contrast between the visibility of the honor given to Columbus and the invisibility, the concealment of struggles of indigenous people today, especially the women uh, he asked to, to pull the statue down. Uh, I, I write in the book uh, some summaries of the really startling disparities in the statistics of the uh, what's known as missing and murdered indigenous women. So in the state of Minnesota, uh, indigenous women and girls and two-spirit people are disproportionately higher, abused, murdered, um, disappear. Their cases are disproportionately lower solved um, or even prosecuted, investigated. And Portia wanted to bring this to public attention by saying, look, oh, there's all this protection given to this hunk of metal honoring someone who never even set foot in North America, uh, whose explorations did set into motion a whole chain of events that resulted in these disparities in the lives of Native Americans and settlers. Uh, and why exactly are we honoring Columbus instead of working together to make sure living people's lives are better. You write something that I found really interesting. You wrote that after the Revolutionary War, when the newly independent country didn't want to give credit to the British for colonizing America, Columbus became part of the nation's origin story. So we're talking about the protesting of Columbus because he was a bit of a barbarian to say the least, uh, treatment of indigenous people. Although, as you point out, he never made it out of the Caribbean and South America. He never set foot in North America. But he became part of the 
nation's origin story. So can you talk a little bit, because this was an interesting sort of sidebar with the Italian-Americans and how they were treated until this rebirth of Columbus as so-called discoverer of America. Columbus entered the national mythology in the, uh, especially the 19th century, Washington Irving did a lot to popularize the idea of Columbus as the founder of America. Uh, But the statues of Columbus that you see all over the place really didn't go up until after the passage of an immigration act in 1924. So there had been a lot of immigration into the U.S. by Italian. Um, there had been a lot of panic uh, among Americans that that native born Americans, quote unquote, uh, would be overwhelmed by this wave of foreign immigration, et cetera. Um, after the 1924 Johnson Reed Act, which imposed immigration quotas, there that worry was assuaged, right? And that there's not going to be an uncontrolled wave of Italians uh, pouring into the country. Um, and then worries turn to assimilation. All right, the Italians that are already here, how can we make them into Americans? And the Italians themselves were also very interested in this um, project of becoming American, becoming accepted as American, um, because they faced a lot of discrimination and prejudice. Uh, they were thought of as less than, um, as inferior, as essentially, you see a lot of references to Italians as, as Black, uh, not as a compliment, uh, but as a uh, a placement of them in, in a non-white, non-dominant um, uh, class uh, citizens. They're only good for, for physical labor, if that. So new Italian-Americans wanted to find a way to be accepted in American society. And essentially, they made an argument claiming whiteness, which at that point was seen more of as a northern European um, quality uh, versus southern Europe, especially um, southern Italy, where a lot of these uh, new immigrants had come from. And they really latched onto the figure of Columbus as someone who had contributed to America and essentially were making a promise, like we will contribute to America in the same way that Columbus did. Uh, so after um, the, the, the later 20s and afterwards, a lot of statues went up in various communities, paid for by Italian-American associations, uh, and accepted by local authorities who were newly willing to uh, accept assimilated Italian-Americans. What I point out in the book is what's been said by a number of scholars on this history is that uh, Columbus as a tool for assimilation was was really something of a knife, right? Um, you had to, if you wanted to become uh, American, give up a lot, your language, uh, sometimes your religion or particularly Italian ways of celebrating your religion to be seen of as to be seen as a white American. Uh, and then I contrast the protests of Columbus statues to the motivations for putting up these Columbus statues, because they're really they're both uh, actions are taking place from oppressed groups who say are trying to say treat us fairly. We belong here in America. You shouldn't be saying that we are lesser than other Americans, Um, but they have um, very different effects in terms of who 
they want to see honored in public space. Yeah. I'd like to turn back in time a little bit, and then I want to move forward in the remaining time about the toppling. The book is sort of in two parts, the rising and the falling, if you will, of these monuments. But I wanted to talk a little bit about something which you wrote, which I found very interesting. You write that after the Civil War, the Confederate soldiers were crushed, disconsolate, walking as if in a dream. They felt emasculated as if they've lost their manhood. Some of them would even talk about how they felt like uh, slaves, which is sort of ironic. Uh, You wrote that, faced with defeat, white Southern society had to come up with a new conception of manliness, and monuments soon became the most important means of reshaping their collective memories of the war. Specifically, as they saw it, their tragically hopeless defense of freedom, the lost cause. So can you talk a little bit about this mindset of the persons for whom these statues were made? And then let's talk a little bit about pre-1880 or pre-1878, I guess, and post-1878, with the end of Reconstruction and how these things exploded in different directions. For the first couple of decades after the end of the Civil War, Either there was relatively few monuments and they went up in, mostly in cemeteries and they had a funereal mourning imagery. Um, very few soldiers, very few warlike um, aspects of these monuments because they were, they're the products of private grief. They're from um, veterans or widows, uh, et cetera, thinking about their, the losses from their family. But after the end of Reconstruction, you see a big shift, uh, and especially uh, not just after the the end of the federal occupation of the South, but after the uh, imposition by Southern legislatures of Jim Crow laws that really restricted Black political participation in the South. Then you start to see a new type of Confederate monument go up in a new location, not the graveyard, but in the center of town in front of city hall or post offices or the courthouse. Uh, and these monuments were much more warlike. They were celebrating Confederate soldiers rather than uh, mourning their, their deaths or even, you know, nobody put up a monument saying, but this is something we should be ashamed of. Definitely not. Uh, and those sculptures were more, um, forward thinking, right? Not just this is something that happened in the past, but they were showing the triumph essentially of of white supremacy in the South in a different form, Uh, right? Slavery might be over, but thanks to Jim Crow, um, we uh, white citizens of the South are still firmly in control of political power and economic power. And uh, we can return in this way to an antebellum fantasy of of everyone knowing their place and living, as you'll see um, in these lost cause writings in the later 19th century, people explicitly say, oh, we um, uh, were, were trying to recreate what they thought of the racial harmony of the pre-war period where everybody was peaceful because everybody knew their place. It's interesting. Statistically, you say that in the first two decades following the Civil War, 90 monuments were erected, and as you said, of them, 
64 were placed in cemeteries, and the remainder of them still had these funeral mourning sort of imageries. Reconstruction ends in, with the Compromise of 1877. The federal troops are moved out. We get stuck with Rutherford B. Hayes as the president. The South gets no more troops. And in the period of 1886 to 1912, you write that 400 Confederate statues are erected, and 85% of them, this is just to prove the point you've made, 85% of these 400 Confederate monuments that were erected between 1886 and 1912 were in public spaces where, quote, you write, all will see them in their daily lives and understand essentially the message that they are intended to project. Yeah. And you have to remember, too, that, you know, today we walk down the street, we see a million images of everything. But at this time, these were often the very first public artworks in um, these smaller communities that didn't have a lot of of other things to look at. So they're even more powerful back then than they are today. We've been talking as if these statues all take place in the Confederate states, but not so. You write, well, we just talked about the settler woman in Massachusetts, but there are two statues that I'd like you to talk a little bit about because they are so instructive in, of what points you're making at a macro level, which the monument near Brattleboro, Vermont, and then here in Washington, D.C., the Freedmen's Memorial. And what is the, tell us about them because it's interesting because they're northern statues, so we're supposed to know better. Yeah, I'm definitely not just criticizing Southern Confederate War Memorials. I, I, I almost have more uh, <laughs> criticism in my heart for, for Northern Civil War Memorials as well, because they agree with Southern monuments in, in saying that Black Americans should not have full political participation after the war. How do they do that? By either just entirely erasing the participation of Black soldiers from the war, uh, or in a few cases, including these two that you just mentioned, by representing Black people, but in this very subordinate way. So actually, the Brattleboro, Vermont monument does both. It is in a park. It's um, a shaft with an anonymous soldier on top, a Union soldier this time, uh, and it has some inscriptions on it. Uh, with some some subordinate decorative plaques. So one of these plaques has two um, generals, Southern and Northern, shaking hands, uh, reconciling after the war, going back to being a union once more. And by their feet is kneeling a, a ragged, torn pants um, figure of a Black man who is uh, receiving a scroll symbolizing emancipation, um, from the Union general who kind of thrusts it into his hands without even making eye contact. Uh, so very definitely still positioning um, America as someplace uh, run by white men, even when they might have, you know, the occasional tiff. Uh, but even more interesting to me was the uh, inscriptions on this monument, which list the number of citizens of Brattleboro who were who fought in the war, were injured and who died in the Civil War. And a few years ago, a local middle school class started to compare these numbers to Civil War records and found that the numbers exclude the Black uh, Vermonters who uh, fought, were injured, died in the war. 
uh, as if even in a, a, a just a, a figure, you can't abide to have a recognition of this uh, participation. Uh, there has been uh, in the last few years discussion of how to change this monument in Brattleboro. I hope something uh, will happen. Uh, and in DC, there's a similar issue with the Freedmen's Memorial. There is uh, the original is there. A copy uh, in Boston was actually recently just removed from public view because uh, after a long series of public discussions, it was decided that there's there's really no way to fix the stereotypes embedded in this monument, which is of Lincoln uh, freeing a uh, offering emancipation. It has a kneeling, nearly nude black man who's just sort of like looking around dazedly as if he can't understand what's happening. Uh, ironically, the face of this man is modeled after an actual historical person, Archer Alexander, uh, who was known to the, the organization commissioning the statue in honor of Lincoln. Uh, and Archer Alexander was someone who escaped from slavery during the war, uh, then escaped not once but twice from uh, kidnappers who were trying to sell him back into slavery. Uh, so he is someone who freed his own self multiple times. He did not need uh, Lincoln to, to hand him this gift. Um, but he is being his image is pressed into service to be this very subordinate looking man. And there have been attempts to change the message of this monument. Um, there's a, another statue that was added to the park in D.C. honoring uh, an educator who really her, her statue shows her handing um, books to children who reach out to, to grasp them, to grasp the knowledge. It gives the lie to this idea that Black Americans are just totally passive. Uh, but I think even when in dialogue with that statue, it's just hard to overcome the message of the Freedmen's Memorial. There are some really touching quotes from, from uh, protesters saying, like, I don't want my children to say, you know, that looks like daddy. Uh, this is, these are the messages that these monuments send and it's it's difficult to modify them. You write that American public monuments depicted black people not as they really were or are, but as white Americans wished they would behave. Pretty telling stuff. Exactly. Wasn't it Frederick Douglass who said upon seeing the Freedmen's Memorial, which went up in like 1875, 76, in that range, that he said he essentially hopes to live to see the day when there is an erect Negro fully embracing his own dignity and the power of his own manhood. But Douglas never got to see a statue like that, did he? Because the, the man on the Freedmen's Memorial is crouching on his hands and knees. So Frederick Douglass said, when am I going to get to see someone who's standing up? Uh, right. And yeah, he never got to see that. So, and, and this is a, also a demonstration that whenever you'll occasionally hear people saying, oh, I didn't, didn't know these statues were problematic. It's like, we've newly discovered them. They were, they were fine for so long. Why are we so annoyed about them now? It's no, if Frederick Douglass at the very unveiling of this statue 
can recognize its problems. There have long been people who have protested these statues. It's just that their voices have been suppressed. You talk in the second half of the book about toppling these statues and how difficult that has proven to be. So do you take us through that? So take the case of Mike Fortune, this activist in the Twin Cities. Uh, You might have seen him on the news with this toppling and think, why couldn't we have had a, a conversation about this? Why couldn't he have done it democratically instead of just taking the law into his own hands, et cetera? Uh, But those news stories left out the fact that he, along with the other indigenous community of the Twin Cities, had been protesting the statue, had been asking for it to be potentially removed, recontextualized, et cetera, for literally decades, had been following what they were told was the procedure to ask for these reconsiderations, only to discover after the statue came down that there never really was any procedure at all. They were essentially just throwing away Uh, all of the petitions that he and other community members filed. And this is the situation really across the U.S. So almost all of the former uh, Confederate states have laws that make it extremely difficult to remove monuments. Um, But even in states that don't have these specific protection laws, there's no mechanism to ask for a monument to be reconsidered. So there's a bureaucratic hesitation to do anything new. And so it's very difficult to um, make a protest known. So it's not surprising to me that in the absence of this um, procedure and in the the absence of people thinking that their protest will be heard, that you see what are essentially acts of civil disobedience, which is why, um, by the way, Minnesota decided in the case of Forcha uh, the prosecutors held, uh, instead of a traditional trial, a form of alternative reparative justice, where they heard from people who thought that the statue itself harmed the community. They heard from people who thought that the removal harmed the community. And then these um, people came to a consensus about what Fortune's sentence should be. And he was ultimately, the, the charges were dismissed uh, for him if he completed community service, 100 hours of talking to people about why he protested and removed the statue. Uh, So uh, there can be alternate outcomes, uh, but also very interestingly to me, Forcha told me like he doesn't want that statue destroyed. He thinks it's a sort of beautiful piece of work. He wants it put up in, in what he calls a hall of shame. Um, with information about why it was there, why it was removed. Uh, He doesn't want this history erased, but there's no, you know, unfortunately you can't uh, at a, it's far easier to pull down a statue than to, um, you know, pull down a statue, drag it to a museum, put it up with some signage. That that doesn't really happen during a protest. So I think that if we did open up, statues to democratic discussion, we would come to some really interesting results. Um, But uh, tamping down these protests is just going to lead to more people taking matters into their own hands, which can be incredibly hazardous. You know, people have been deeply injured um, trying to topple statues over the last couple of years. And that is not something that we should be seeing. They do weigh a lot. The thing that was interesting to me, you noted that since George Floyd, 
in 2020, 170 statues have been removed. But in fact, in many, many states, taking them down is not really a permanent thing. There's just sort of a reshuffling. You said something like moving an abusive priest from one parish to another. So talk a little bit about all the laws that have come up and why these statues, which look like they've come down, really may not have come down for good. Where should we go with this? Should there be signage? Should there be museum? Should there be, you know, sort of parks of multiple statues? What's your, after your research, what do you conclude is the best way to approach this besides consensus in the community? I made a very extensive dorky spreadsheet tracking the fate of all of the removed statues I could find. And I could only discover one irrevocable destruction of any of the statues removed um, so far. Uh, one serving size, serving platter size portrait of Columbus was chipped off a monument in Connecticut. And uh, then they, they put uh, an Italian flag on instead. Uh, but everything else has either been taken down only to be re-erected elsewhere soon after in maybe a, a less prominent site in a graveyard, a historic battlefield, et cetera, but still in public view, or has been given back to an appropriate heritage group. And they have the, the option of, of putting it back up elsewhere. Uh, or most of them, especially the ones that have come down recently, are still in storage. Um, but many municipalities have said they're in storage to be put back up elsewhere. Um, they're in storage while, while their fate is decided. Uh, so these sculptures are very much not gone forever. And I got very interested in that. And in some cases, I think we're probably, as taxpayers, paying more to store these statues than we even did to maintain them in the first place. Uh, so this is a major ongoing issue. As to what should happen, you know, I'm, I'm not in charge and nor do I think that any individual should be in charge. I think that this should be a community decision and can have very different outcomes in different places. Some places might say it's enough to put up a sign or an alternative monument, a, a complementary sort of disputing monument. Um, some places might want them gone forever. Uh, Charlottesville has just uh, voted to give its sculpture of Robert E. Lee, which had been at the center of the deadly Unite the Right rally, to a local African-American nonprofit to melt down uh, and commission an artist to use the bronze to make a new public monument. Uh, there is shortly after they announced this plan, um, there's a lawsuit to try and stop it and give the statue to Confederate heritage groups instead. Uh, so we'll see that that case is currently pending. Um, if, it, if it happens, it would be the first irrevocable description of a Confederate monument that I could find, not just in the last couple of years, but from the entire history of American Confederate monuments, a public monument, right? Uh, so we have a lot of, of discussion to do. And I think that's very exciting. And I, I encourage everybody who's listening or who ends up reading the book to make their thoughts known, because it's it's not like people in, in authority, it's not like the art world or, or museum curators have any great ideas of what 
should be. You know, it's, it's, it's open season to come up with ideas of what to do with monuments, how to use them to get to a better future as opposed to um, keeping them up just because they're art or just because they're there. You write in conclusion, not exactly the conclusion, but in summing up, you say two things. One is that America needs new monuments, even if they look nothing like the traditional ones. We need monuments to honor ideas and actions that would have horrified the makers of the older monuments. But adding new monuments is part of the process of change as we can reconsider our country. But the removal of monuments must be accommodated by adding new ones, or at least the teaching of the actual history. Is that it pretty much that these monuments, though, sort of of people frozen in time, don't represent us because we're not frozen in time and we can collectively decide how we want to move forward as a as a country or as a community? I think so. And this it's just my personal points of view here is in terms of what we can do. But I, I think it's not just time to to change the person on the horse, right? To take down one dude from a horse and then put up somebody else. Uh, it's not just time to to recast who is represented in traditional style monuments, but I think it is time to have a really radical reimagining of what monuments are for, can look like, and can do. It's a very interesting book, Smashing Statues, The Rise and Fall of America's Public Monuments. Erin Thompson, I'm very grateful for you to take the time to speak with me today, and it's a intriguing book, which we didn't talk about a lot of the stories like Stone Mountain and Mount Rushmore, which I saved so the reader can now go pick up the book and find out what's up with Mount Rushmore and Stone Mountain and many other things. a good story. Yeah. A great story. So thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for the conversation. That Said is produced by Compro and the Museum of Public Relations. Theme music by Sam Post. Please let us know your thoughts by writing to us at thatsaidzeldin at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening. For That Said, I'm Michael Zeldin.